Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hello, and welcome everybody to another episode of Pod Strickland. I'm your host. Shwini Poo, this is episode 297 that is brought to you by Bet Online. BetOnline.ag is your number one source for all your basketball info, stats, news, and scores. Get the latest odds and lines, including the latest player reports for this year's pro basketball playoffs. Bet Online is always your sports information headquarters this season, as we have you covered for all your sports wagering needs. Basketball, MLB, NHL hockey, right to UFC and boxing. Bet Online is the fastest and easiest way to get your betting info, including live betting options and your favorite casino and card games you can play right from your home. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on the action. Be sure to use our promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online where the game starts. I really love doing that right at the top of the show. Uh, but. We do have a couple of guests today. First, uh, I will introduce friend of the pod who you may be familiar with from the rundown. His name is Jeffrey Rasmussen. That is at Frank Barrett one one nine on Twitter. Jeff, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Um, I don't think have we talked since the season ended. No, I, I know no. I was on recently. Okay, so yeah, um, we talked you know, before the season ended. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, 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 I know it was recently. You know, you just lose track of days. It's a weird feeling to be rooting for a team in the playoffs. I know. But, um, it's, a, it's a very unique yeah, feeling. It's, uh, yeah, it, uh, it stinks the season's over, and I'm excited to talk about it. But, you know, everything's good. Well, for somebody else, their team season is also over. His name is Simon Sharon Gordon. He does a lot of social media stuff and things for the NBA. Uh, Simon... How are you feeling that the dynasty is over? It is dead. How do you feel uh, that you lost to the king? <laughs> uh, I thought you were about to say the kings, and I was gonna, I was gonna correct you on that. But uh, I mean, it's it's funny because for me, it feels kind of weird for your team not to be in the playoffs anymore, <laughs> um, which I know is like such an obnoxious thing to say. But you know, we're in we're in the same boat right now. So uh, you know, two two, I'd say. I'd say not super like lopsided, but definitive six game series losses. Like I don't feel like these are those kind of series where you could say, "Oh, like maybe the wrong team won." Well, um, I disagree with you, but we're going to talk about that before we get started. Though I have to make a few announcements. The first being that the Strickland has an Instagram. Check that out. That is at the Strick.land on Instagram. We are posting all kinds of new content on there. The Strickland also has a YouTube channel where you may be watching this podcast. If you are, please hit like and then subscribe to the channel if you already haven't done so. That would be a huge help to us. The Strickland also has merchandise, new merchandise even. There's Jalen Brunson t-shirts. There is a t-shirt with all of the Knicks on it and Leon Rose and Tom Thibodeau. It's wonderful. We also have Quickly Gear. There are t-shirts. There are sweatshirts. There are hats. There are even coffee mugs, if you're so inclined. The Strickland also 
has a Patreon, which you can subscribe to. There are a number of different tiers. There is a six-star tier that gets you access to Pod Strickland, this podcast that I host every Friday with Prez. You also get access to Strickland Mailbag, hosted by Andrew Steele, a.k.a. Doug, a.k.a. The Doug Bag, alongside Dallas Amico that comes out every other week. You also get access to the Strickland Discord, where the conversation never stops. There are further tiers. There is a $9 tier that gets you access to Strickland Roll, my solo pod where I rant and rave about the Knicks even more. You also get access to wonderful premium articles by Matthew Miranda, the recap goat, as I like to call him, one of the best in the business. There are further tiers. There is a $15 tier, $30 tier, $50 tier, and $100 tier. Those come with a variety of additional benefits like listening in on pod recordings, merchandise discounts, and even potentially co-hosting a podcast alongside yours truly one day, whether you choose to subscribe or not. None of this would be possible without you. So without further ado, let's get started. By the way, Jeff, are you drinking out of the RJ Barrett water bottle? You can buy that on the website, folks. Look at that. Look at that product placement. You can't teach that. That's natural skill right there. Okay, I want to go back to what you said. I agree that the Lakers just had more in the bag than this Warriors team, and we will talk about that, I'm sure. Um, and we will talk about your favorite player, Jordan Poole, who really covered himself in glory this season. Um, and by glory, I mean piss. Um, but uh, I will die on this hill, which is not really that. I mean, it, this is like not a really controversial thing to me. Um, and I also like, don't feel as upset about this as I did in 2013 when the Knicks lost to the Pacers, probably because it subconsciously I knew that Knicks team was like, that was the team they had and they probably were never going to get a better shot than that season. Um, Although I did deny it in real time. I was like, no, they can be definitely better next year. Ron Artest is going to take us places. Um, Andrea Brugnani is going to space the floor. Um, I think the Knicks pissed this series away i think and and we can talk about individual players and all these things but i think there are two major culprits for why the knicks lost this series the first straight up to me is tom thibodeau um i think he wasted the first three games of this series and then he went back and doubled down on the idiotic choices he made in games one to three at the end of game six in the fourth quarter um, specifically playing Josh Hart and R.J. Barrett for 10 minutes in the fourth quarter who did not space the floor, did not get defended like they were spacing the floor. And we had plenty of evidence throughout the playoffs that that combination specifically was not good. And he leaned on it, and it burned them. And that was a quarter where Miami, for all their grit and grind and culture and all that bullshit. They scored a whopping 18 points until it became automatic foul got, uh, foul time. They scored four points on free throws at the end of the game because the Knicks had to foul. But uh, they scored 18 points when it really mattered. So the defense was there. They pissed that away. Um, and I think Tibbs' rotations and his unwillingness to be flexible um, you know, try playing small, play hard at the four, you know, all these types of things, which we've talked about endlessly. Every margin, he, he lost all the margins in the series. And Spolstra honestly didn't need to do any amazing Spolstra stuff to, to win this series, which kind of makes it even more frustrating. Um, and the, the other guy, which I can't get away from, is Julius Randle. Like, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for the struggles of Quentin Grimes and Obi Toppin and Josh Hart and Emmanuel Quickly and, you know, R.J. Barrett in Game 6. He was really good the first five games of the series. 
I have a lot more sympathy for those guys' struggles because I think they're supporting players the way the team is structured. And a lot of their struggles to me are inextricably inextricably linked to Tibbs's deviation from what worked in the regular season. Julius Randle is not in that boat. And while you can tell me that, yes, you know, it doesn't help him playing with Josh Hart and RJ Barrett and not having the same kind of space and blah, blah, blah. And Mitch doesn't space the floor and he just hangs out in the paint. All those things can be true. The expectation for a third team all NBA player is to be somewhat scheme, scheme proof in a way. Um, you have to rise above that shit and be a difference maker. And you contrast his performance. And I, and I don't just mean like scoring efficiently, your decision making, your effort, your commitment to making winning plays, hustling, all that type of shit. When you compare his play to Jalen Brunson, it is a vast, vast difference. And I'm not really interested in piling on Tibbs and Randall um, because they're going to be back. And I don't think that's like some horrific decision. I'm not in that camp either. Um, but it's okay to believe and, and feel very strongly that those two were the biggest culprits for why the Knicks lost this series, an eminently winnable series. And I understand, you know, yes, it's hard for Tibbs that guys got injured and he had to make some adjustments on the fly. It's hard for Julius that, you know, he got hurt right before the playoffs and he re-aggravated the injury. And I get all that. I don't think those are good enough excuses to hand wave away the myriad of issues that popped up from both those guys in this series. I, I, we, and we will talk about this, you know, more meta stuff down the line in, on this pod, I'm sure. But um, I, I'm not of the belief that you need to make drastic changes. I personally would. I would. I would move on from Tom Thibodeau, and I would be very open to moving Julius Randle um, if a good offer came along. But I don't think those, like, I, I don't think my personal belief on those issues means that sticking with those guys is a terrible choice. I don't think that. I, I think those are very reasonable options to stick with Thibodeau and hang on to Julius Randle and more or less run this team back. But it's like I, I will believe all offseason uh, that those two were the biggest reasons why the Knicks lost this series. And I think the Tibbs part of it is more frustrating to me because a coach not controlling what he can is the most frustrating thing to me as a fan. Like, I just think it's really, really frustrating that if your core tenant as a coach is, I want Brunson, Randall, and RJ to get downhill and get into the paint, I think it's really, really frustrating to then pair them and, and put them in lineups where you're making it extremely difficult for them to do that, um, which is effectively what he did for way too long in the series by playing Josh Hart and R.J. Barrett together for long stretches of time. And um, I have some certain numbers here that I want to run through here. In this series, okay, there are 288 minutes total that were played in this series. The Knicks had 108.5 offensive rating, and they had 112.6 defensive rating. Now, here's the kicker. If you put the, the minutes that R.J. Barrett and Josh Hart played together in this series, okay, just just those minutes. They played, uh, sorry, my um, it's collating. All right, here we go. They played 102 minutes together in this series. In those 102 minutes, 
They had 108.7 offensive rating. They had a 125 defensive rating. That is atrocious. And if you, it's also surprising, wouldn't you say? I would, I would, based on like just watching them, I would have assumed that, especially with how much the offense struggled overall in the postseason, I would have assumed the offensive rating would have been lower and, and the defense would have been fine. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm just surprised. I'm not too surprised by the defense because their defense with those two on the floor, and the, I don't actually think this is because either of them is a, at least RJ in the playoffs was definitely not a bad defender, and Josh Hart is not a bad defender. Um, I don't think it's because they were individually bad on defense i just think when you're hiding brunts you have to hide brunson somewhere neither rj or hart is particularly great at fighting over screens constantly which is like so one of them has to defend point of attack i think they're kind of a little slow there's a variety of reasons and and it's a small sample so maybe you want to just say there's variance but like they were not a good defense when either when both those guys were together, even in the regular season, um, over a longer sample, so they're just not a good defensive team together. Uh, offensively, um, you know this is worth noting. As bad as Quentin Grimes shot the ball in the 180 minutes he played in the series, the Knicks did have 110.1 offensive rating, which is slightly better than what they registered overall, and they had a 108 defensive rating. It was glaringly obvious that he needed to be on the floor throughout that fourth quarter. I believe, I mean, just, you know, if you look at just Brunson alone, um, Brunson, when Quentin Grimes played, these are just, I'm just reading off the numbers, all right? So just take it for what it is. He had a 64.3 EFG and a 68.8 true shooting on 29.8 usage. In 132 minutes that Julius Randle played with Quentin Grimes, he had a 52 EFG and a 57.4 true shooting percentage on 27 usage. Uh, RJ Barrett, 51 EFG, 58.7 true shooting on 28.9 usage. Um, your three best guys played really well with this dude on the floor, and you punted on that for way too long in the series. I think that's a huge coaching mistake, and... You can tell me all you want. Quickly's got to shoot better. Grimes got to shoot better. Grimes was scared of the moment. You know, guys got to make shots. I, I get all that, and and that's all fine and dandy. But when you when you pretend that Quentin Grimes shooting twenty five percent from three or whatever the hell he shot is the same thing and is defended the same way as Josh Hart shooting, who cares what he shot? Then you just don't know fucking ball. I'm sorry. And I think Tibbs knows ball, but I think Tibbs is a stubborn motherfucker. And I think Tibbs has a hard-on for Josh Hart. And that fucking hard-on cost the Knicks the series. I, I want to, like, because I, I think a lot of what you're saying makes sense. And, like, I'm obviously not nearly as plugged into the rotations and the lineup combinations and all of that as you are. Um, but I, I trust I trust your analysis of it. I guess my question would be, like, A... Do you think that, like, with a Eric Spolstra, you know, Ty Lu tier coach, are the Knicks were the Knicks the better team, like roster wise? Because I think that's like the first question you have to ask, and then B, like, because because a coach is part of part of a team, right? Mm-hmm. Like when you say like, because I get what you're saying about it is more frustrating 
when it feels like coaching decisions are what lose you a series. But like you also said, well, Spolstra didn't even have to like get deep into his bag to like win this coaching matchup. If Thibodeau was a little better, would Spolstra have still been able to outcoach him? Would the at that point, would the roster differences have like swung it back in favor of the Knicks? And the reason that I feel like these are the questions you have to ask, uh, and it also goes to like Randall, like you said, like he didn't play like an All NBA guy. He might not really be an All NBA. Like he's not a top. He's a two-time All NBA player, sir. Right, but you know what I'm saying. Like he's he's clearly like maybe just not quite on that level. So in terms of going forward, it's like. When you lose a series, it will be either, you know, at the fault of somebody or just so, at the fault of somebody because they're worse than so, their equivalent on the other side. I'll, I'll put it this I mean? way. Um, when I say Spolstra didn't get deep into his bag, I don't mean that he didn't try shit. I mean that, like, he didn't need to really do a lot of special coaching on top on his head type of like this is not like you know what do they say in hockey like the goalie stood on his head and carried it like this is not that this was not like like last year Spolstra you know that seven game series against Boston like that was just like him doing shit and Jimmy Butler like making big shots and it's like I think the Thibodeau point to me I would be a lot more um I don't even know how to say this I, I would Let's put it this way. If you lost this series because Jimmy Butler was the best player in it, I am okay with that. Jalen Brunson was the best player in this series, and you lost it. Like, that's a problem. That effect, like, generally speaking, if you have the best player in the series, you should probably win it. Jalen Brunson was spectacular. Like, I, I can't say enough glowing praise and things about him. He was that good. Um, when you're not maximizing what makes him best, you're failing as a coach. And that was a major issue for so much of this series. I mean, his numbers when Grimes played versus when Josh Hart played are night and day. And that's not, that's not even like, it's not even fair to, to criticize Hart because this is who he is as a player, right? He's not going to space the floor. He's not going to be like a guy that teams are threatened by. And, you know, when you talk about coaching with Tibbs, like how many coaches in the NBA in 2023 would be this rigid and married to playing two bigs on the floor at all times? We, I mean, I mean, just imagine Simon, if the Lakers didn't, start shooter in game six if the late or, or just imagine like you just watched the series where a rookie coach and darvin ham literally made multiple adjustments within the series you saw jared vanderbilt start the series on steph curry and then steve kerr who i know you know sometimes he's not popular with warrior coaches i think that's kind of bonkers steve kerr adjusted as he should put steph curry on jared vanderbilt all of a sudden steph's not working as working as hard on defense their defense their defense works better and then Darvin Ham, a rookie coach, steps in and he's like, okay, we got to fix this. We need to make Steph work on defense. Starts Dennis Schroeder. Go watch. I mean, I know I'm not saying to you, I'm saying to listeners, anyone who didn't watch game six of Lakers Warriors closely, go watch that game again. 
Steph works more in that game defensively than he did the first five games. They're, because the Warriors are as good as any team in basketball. They basically invented handing off switches. So when somebody tries to bring Steph into the action, the Warriors are as on a string and communicative at getting Steph out of the action. They do that better than anybody. They weren't able to do that because even if they were stopping the primary action, the Lakers would just get Steph into the secondary action. That was all because Darvin Ham assessed what was going on in front of him and made the correct adjustment, getting Schroeder in the starting lineup. Now imagine an alternative where Darvin Ham says, oh, Anthony Davis is our center. We need a true backup center. And Mo Bamba played 12 minutes a night instead of LeBron James playing backup center. Like that's what Darvin Ham, a rookie coach, is able to say, okay, we're going to play one way with Anthony Davis at center and we're going to play one way with LeBron James at center. We... Tibbs doesn't do that. Like we we play the same way every game of every season. There are like there there are small adjustments, but on a relative basis, this is legitimately the most rigidity you'll ever see. And it's just, I mean, everything Schwinn said is incredible. It's incredibly frustrating. It's I think the most frustrating part of it is like we praised Tibbs a lot through the second half of the season because he had made he made adjustments that I was like, look, I, I'm 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 never. I'm beyond the point of like pretending that Tibbs is ever going to play like Randall at the five or something, right? Like I, I'm beyond that really being a thing. But he did small things like not even small things, like significant things, like okay, used hard at the four in specific games, like like he did shit like that. And you know, oh, I'll close with quickly and Brunson. I will pl- like I he played quickly and Brunson a bunch this season, which like you can. Look at listen to pods that we did before the year. Me and Jeff were both like, I don't know, is Tibbs going to play Quick and Brunson together? They're kind of small. He might not do it. This is this could be a bad thing. But he did all these things, and then in the like, the playoffs started, and it was like everything went out the window, and it was just Tibbs like coaching on his gut, his very impressive gut. Um, but he, it was him coaching on his gut, and it was like when he coaches on his gut instead of leaning on the things that we know like that got you here that's just really fun like he he basically you like injuries to grimes and randall are unfortunate and i mean that like genuinely like they are unfortunate you have to deal with shit in the playoffs you know like it is what it is but he effectively used those injuries as specifically the grimes one to then like almost justify like starting Hart for three games even though Grimes was healthy at the start of the series he was healthy he played game one he closed game two which that's what makes it even more frustrating he closed with Grimes for like 15 straight minutes in game two which is why the Knicks pulled that game out or at least was a huge reason why the Knicks pulled that game out and then he starts game three with the same dog shit starting lineup that has not that had not been working all playoffs that lineup specifically that he went to, it did not work all playoffs, and he punted it an entire game. To 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 Jeff's point, there was no adjustment at any point in that game. And and I'll bring this up because this was a, like you know you if you don't buy the the like Grimes spacing was better than Hart or whatever, I, I disagree. But okay, fine. Let's let's roll with that. The one thing he did in Game Six that is inexcusable that is absolutely inexcusable, was that two-minute and seven-second stretch in the second quarter when he put this lineup on the floor. Deuce McBride, R.J. Barrett, Josh Hart, Obi Toppin, Isaiah Hartenstein. 
That is a joke. That lineup is a fucking joke. You don't have spacing. Your only viable shot creator is RJ Barrett, who, if he doesn't have spacing, is going to struggle. Like, it, it was an absolutely egregious decision. And in a game, in that first half, he played Brunson 21 minutes and he played Julius 17 minutes. I don't know how much Grimes played. Grimes, I imagine, played something like third, probably like 15 minutes or something. To have a lineup where none of those three is on the floor, especially one of Brunson or Randall, is a joke. Like, that was egregious. They basically went up, they went from being up seven to down one like that. And yeah, you can tell me, well, you know, guys got to make better, they got to make shots and they got to make better reads and all. You have to control what you can control as a coach. When you put that lineup on the floor, you are introducing disaster potential into the game. That's what you're doing. And that is what happened. And and, and why I bring that up is because of this. In game three, he started the second quarter with that same lineup, except he had quickly on instead of deuce. I didn't like that lineup with quickly, who is way better. I don't care how much he struggled in the playoffs. Way better than Deuce McBride at everything on offense, as things stand. Okay, way better than him and everything on offense. And I didn't like that lineup with him, and they got blitzed in those minutes. So he saw that. He he, he had multiple games, right? He had a, days to, to weigh this, watch the film 75 fucking times, look at the numbers, whatever. And he went back to a worse version of that lineup in the most important game of the season. I cannot explain to me or explain to anybody... Watching that in real time, I was just sitting on my couch like, is this fucking for real? Like, re- like you, what? Like, you, you didn't even play, you didn't play Deuce McBride in game five at home. You didn't play him at home. Now you're throwing him into this lineup in game six on the road, must win game against Miami with all their fucking culture and, you know, gym tan laundry that they do down there. Like all of the Spolstra stuff, you're introducing him and you're making him be the primary ball handler in this lineup. I'm sorry, man. That's wild to me. Like that is such awful coaching. Um, but I, I, and I do want this to be said because I'm sure that people, there will be listeners. Like, I, I don't. I, I really think Tibbs did a good job this year. I just think he coached an awful series against Miami. And I and I say that because I actually think he coached a good series against Cleveland, even though I didn't agree with all the decisions. Um, I thought he coached a good series against Cleveland, and that's what makes this series against Miami extremely frustrating because it's like he picked the worst time to go full tips. But I I feel like this kind of gets to the point, and I I I again agree with, and also to the extent that I just you know don't follow it, believe you guys on on the frustrations with his decisions, I guess what it comes down to is like the farther into the playoffs you go, the higher the threshold is. I mean, one team wins the championship, right? And 29 other teams don't. And the farther you go, you're going to like, like pretty much every team in the history of the sport have either had like an all time superstar or an all time coach, usually a combo. Uh, to win a championship, you know, like the Lakers won in 2020. I don't think Vogel is like, like he did a great job that year, but he's probably more on like the Thibs tier. Yeah, but they had Jason Kidd on the bench too. They they did have Jason Kidd on the bench. That's true. <laughs> um, that's true. Real star-studded staff there. But like, 
there's just a lot of little things that like the Warriors, for example, right? I think Steve Kerr is one of the greatest coaches ever. Um, but I think that their overall like staff was hit with the loss of Mike Brown. Um, and I think that like for all the stuff you can say about the problems with the team, which we'll get into, like that was a huge reason that their defense fell off this year. Um, and similarly for Thibs, like, it's like you guys had, he did a great job this season. Like you said, he, he did a great coaching job. A lot of what made the Knicks a team that was even, you know, playing in game six of the East semis was because of him and, and all of his strengths, but it's like to, and, and, and obviously what he did in the Cleveland series, like you said, like he thoroughly outcoached Bickerstaff in that series. So then it's like, okay, but in order to make the third round, you need a coach who can win that kind of series and, and make, you know, outcoach that type of coach against that type of team and then switch it up and beat a team like Miami and a coach like Spolstra. And if he's not that guy, then, you know, he's not quite good enough. The question would be who is and who is for this roster. You know, we, we've seen better coaches already get fired this season. I mean, Nurse, I don't know if you want to consider that a firing, but like that that's just the nature of of the sport, right? It's like in order to keep climbing those tiers, I mean, Mike Budenholzer, I think is on inarguably a top 10 coach in the league um, and probably higher than that and won a championship two years ago. Right. I don't think the bucks are necessarily wrong to think that he might not be good enough to, you know, win them another, or he might be, but it's going to be tough. Now, who are they going to replace him with? When they start interviewing guys like Mark Jackson, I start to question, like, what the fuck are you doing? Or Scott Brooks. Um, so, you know, Thibodeau is, like, a step below that. So there is, in that sense, more room to step up if you make a coaching change. But I think these are, like, kind of the somber realities you have to face as you move oh, yeah. from, like, oh, we're, you know, a middling, maybe play-in team. It's not that hard to become a playoff team from there. It's a lot harder to go from that to... Oh, yeah cracking that top tier yeah and i and i i actually i know jeff wanted to talk about this but like one of the main things for me with this team and this is why like as much as i'm as i'm critical of tibbs and randall's performance like why i don't think it's i think there's like plenty of logic and reasoning to just keeping both of them right now this offseason because like you said this is i don't want to say this is the easy part but getting to like 47 and 35 second round team that's like uh, that's the easiest step when you're trying to become a contender that's the most like taking that final step those final pieces that you need that's the hardest part and it's the part that you can fuck up like look at look at atlanta as an example right they what they thought we need another creator right they make the ecft or the conference finals a couple years ago they take a step back last season. Okay, we need to get another creator to play with Trey Young. DeJounte Murray's an all-star. Let's go get him because this is going to put us over the top. Obviously, that didn't come close to having that effect on them. And when you make these big swings, and that can be you know either a trade or like you talked about, replacing a coach, there's real risk that while your intentions might be good, the, 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 re, the reality is just isn't there. I mean, we saw this actually. One of the best examples of this, I think, was the Pacers a few years ago, right? They so they had Nate McMillan, their first round exit every year. 
right? Every year it's like, okay, it's the same fucking story. This is so annoying. He's not getting enough out of this roster, blah, 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 blah. They fire him. They hire Nate Bjorkren, who is supposed to be this creative, awesome offensive mind. And they had a disaster season. Like they missed the playoffs entirely. He gets fired after one year. Um, Like that's a real risk. Like I don't, and it's like, I think there is real risk of them in them firing Tibbs because every coach has its own, has his own things that he does that pisses people off. You know, like if you, you know, if you listen to like, if I go through Warriors Twitter, uh, you know, Steve Kerr committed war crimes this season, apparently. Um, but like every coach does shit that annoys fans. Right. And, and every coach does things that are probably wrong. Like it, it's not crazy to say that because that's just, people are going to be, subjective about various things so that's just human nature um but like i i think what we know with tibbs is this his floor he's going to get you to be a competent serious basketball team and that's for the knicks that's like a serious that's a very positive development so like even their bad season last year right they were like 37 and 45 it wasn't you know it wasn't like some 25 win disaster this was like okay you fucked up some shit but like still a competent serious basketball team um because he's so rigid guys know every single night almost like what what's my role what am i going to do what is being asked of me you're doing you're running the same coverages over and over and over again defensively like everybody knows what they need to do that creates real like that gives you a safe floor in the regular season for a variety of reasons um, I think he's. I think he's fine at developing players. That's. I, in fact, I think you can argue he's good at it. Um, whether he knows that or not, I'm not sure at times. But he is good at developing players, and and I think that's his track record in in the league speaks for itself. Forget Derrick Rose, right? Because that's got number one pick. But like you've seen, Joakim Noah, Jimmy Butler, um, with with the Knicks. I mean, I don't even care about the Minnesota things. That was whatever. Um, but like with the Knicks, right? We've seen RJ Barrett develop under him. We've seen Emmanuel quickly develop under him. We've seen Quentin Grimes develop under him. Like there's plenty of track record of this guy at the bare minimum. He doesn't hinder player development. That matters. That's important. Uh, He deserves credit for that. And I've consistently given him credit for that. I think that he deserves it. Um, What I question though with him is when you get into the playoffs, you need to be quick on your feet. You need to be willing to adjust. You need to be willing to adapt. And you need to make decisive choices very quickly. And too often, Tibbs is waiting too long. You know, he waits two minutes too long. He waits, you know, it's it's always very reactive is probably the best way to put it. And I don't feel, I don't feel confident. I don't believe that that's going to change with him. Um, I don't know. Sorry, I've been talking a lot. Jeff, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this, though. Well, I think what Simon was touching upon was floor versus ceiling. Uh Um, And I feel like Simon has a pretty firm grasp on that because, I mean, we don't have, the Knicks don't have Steph Curry. So that's the one giant difference. I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to undersell that. We have Jalen Curry. But the, yeah, the, but the Warriors were lost uh, 12 years ago in 2011 they had fans booing their ownership at half court during a Jersey, whatever was going on that was at so, halftime. That was so funny. <laughs> they were, they were doomed. And then they hired Mark Jackson 
And Mark Jackson came in and you know what, for all of his faults and all of his, I, I don't think he'd be a good coach for, you know, 25 out of 30 teams in the league, but he did do two things for that Warriors core. He taught them how to play defense and he established some baseline of a foundation. Sometimes a leader, sometimes being a leader of men is like a real thing. It is a yeah. real thing. I, I believe it. Yeah. But by the time it got to 2014 and they had traded for Andre Godala, they were last in the league in passing percentage. <laughs> Be, having a competent floor didn't matter anymore. It was clear that this core had outgrown, oh, well, we have a high baseline. Like, great, we, we made the first round and we took the Clippers to seven. No, like Steph Curry and Clay Thompson, there was more to get from Draymond Green. This was an elite passing team. It was clear to anybody who was watching it. They needed a new infusion. The Knicks are not that. But my point is is that a high-floor coach can only take you so far. And at a certain point, you have to say, we believe in this core. We're going to start embracing solutions that invite a higher ceiling. And if you keeping Tibbs around is basically saying, we don't really see this core as the title contender, so we're sort of going to stand pat until we can trade for a superstar, which is why I sort of disagree with you, Schwinn, and I, I I do agree that Randall and Tibbs both justified being Nick on the Knicks next season. Like, I don't think, like, oh, get them the hell out of here. They're disgraces. No. I think Tom Thibodeau did a good job coaching last season, and Julius Randall had a deserving All-NBA season. But I would not see the purpose in running it back next season. I just don't – I don't see what that accomplishes – I think the ceiling would be the same as it ever was. Like, I don't think Nick fans truly understand how far away from contention we have to be. To, like, every single domino fell in line for the Knicks this season. They got the perfect round one matchup, and then they got an eight seed in round two. And the result was the same as the Warriors. Now, if I was a Warriors fan, I wouldn't be like, oh, well, the Knicks lost in six, and we lost in six, so... Shouldn't we both view this offseason the same? No. If I was the Warriors, I would be like, we can absolutely win a championship next season. Maybe we've got to tinker a little bit, but there's no reason to think Steph Curry can't win a championship. There's no reason to think Steve Kerr is a championship coach who will make adjustments. Steph can't win without KD. (laughs) There are tons of reasons, all the reasons, to think that Tom Thibodeau is just going to be in the same spot next season, and we're just going to be having the same conversation. So I wouldn't understand the point of just running this team back. Because here's the other thing. There are an abundance of young players that the Knicks have whose ceilings are also being suppressed under this paradigm right now. Like, I truly believe, I I genuinely believe that Emmanuel Quickly, if he was just, like, on the Rockets last year, would have been in all-star conversations. And I don't don't think that's crazy at all. His his starter-level production was, like, was all-star-level production. Like, from an impact standpoint as a starter... It was close to Jalen Brunson because he is one of the best defenders in the entire league. Um, and we're basically saying to Emmanuel quickly, you can never be a star because Tom Thibodeau plays one way and you're going to come off the bench and you're only going to play one shift a half and yada, 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 and go down the line. RJ well, Barrett, third option on this team. I, I, like this is all we're inviting all of these same things. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, if we run this back next season and it's Thibodeau and it's Randall and it's Brunson, we're going to be having the same RJ conversations. We are because it's, it's not, it's almost Star unfair J. to him. Like star J right. <laughs> we're going to have the same people defending him. Oh, the stats don't matter. I know my eyes see, and we're just, we're just going to do the same thing over again. And I don't understand the, whole, the point so, of kicking the pail up the road further. Okay. I 
two things. Um, one, I would suggest, or I would posit, that their argument, or the argument one would make um, in running it back is, we were really good this year. Let's continue to be really good. And at some point, some star is going to want out. And if we're really good, we're going to be an attractive team for star player X to want to join. That would be, that is 100% what I believe. Yeah, the way I they agree. I'm not saying we should tank. No, no, no. I, I, just to be clear, I'm not saying yeah. we should like tank. No, no. I, I'm just saying maybe do, I just think we're the only team, literally the only team that I'm seeing that's not like a true contender. That's like, oh, well, we're young and we had a little bit of success. So like, we don't have to do anything. Like, I don't know. I, I, I think that Knicks fans genuinely have PTSD from 2001 to 2020. I like, I think do they're have I think they're. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think they're. I think they're afraid of like what inviting variants might do. What the downside of inv- inviting more variants is, but you have to do that to potentially raise your ceiling. So if I think, you don't want, well, and, and no, sorry, sorry, go ahead. I was, I was actually. No, so finish up, Jeff. I was gonna. Yeah. yeah. No, that that was just. I, I just think that you have to be willing to take half a step back, to take two steps forward. So, And I don't think there's a coach in the league who is less willing to do that than Tom Thibodeau. I definitely agree that Tibbs struggles with accepting that sometimes you need to take a lump um, for further word down the line. That's not that's not the worst thing, but I do under, I, I'm with you that that is frustrating at times. I would say this. I think part of um, adapting and the, like I've, I think I've, I've said this before, but like I think the Knicks need to evolve. Like, and I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this, Simon, because um, I, you know, I can't pretend like I was crunching uh, Mark Jackson Warriors tape and all that stuff. But like, one of my concerns coming into the playoffs was, yes, we were the third best offense in the NBA in the regular season. A lot of that is was based on winning possession ball. Like we played possession b- basketball, basically. It was just like we're going to beat the shit out of the offensive glass, and we're going to, you know, that's what we're going to do. And we have enough offensive individual scoring talent that that's enough. And that's a really good way to win a lot of regular season games. I don't doubt that at all. My feeling though was like when you get into the playoffs being this off-ball stagnant team to the level the Knicks are is a ceiling capper, and it becomes an increasing problem as you go round after round after round. Um, Against Cleveland, it didn't matter because we totally destroyed them in, one, we killed them on the glass, but two, like, quite frankly, they just didn't have the talent. Like, like, Donovan Mitchell's a hell of a player, and Darius Garland's really good. Evan Mobley is probably going to be an awesome player one day. Guess what? He ain't an awesome player right this second. And Jared Allen is not as good as Mitchell Robinson. So I'm happy that that was discovered during that playoff series anyway. Um, but like they, they couldn't challenge us in any way, really. They, they couldn't, they did not have the firepower, um, or the kind of veteran know-how, uh, the way that Miami does. In this series and, and throughout the playoffs, really though, those shortcomings offensively where you have, you basically are just inviting teams to load up on your guys. Yeah. It's, Brunson and it's RJ and it's Randall and then it's quickly for a little bit and it's like you're just putting so much on those dudes to create against set defenses and in the playoffs it's like you know 
teams are clued up on your tendencies and they're way more knowledgeable and they're way more um, focused than you get in the regular season. I think that's a reason why quickly struggled the way he did. Um, and I think part of that was like Tibbs, like to your point, Jeff, about like sometimes you got to take a, a hit for further gain on the line. Tibbs just went away from quickly as a creator basically after the first quarter of the Cleveland series. He was just like, okay, he struggled, so I'm not doing that anymore. And I, again, like I, I get that it's the playoffs and sometimes you're going to make a decision like that. And I'm, I was okay with that in the Cleveland series because I didn't think the, like, quite frankly, I didn't think Cleveland could beat us if we just didn't turn the ball over and we didn't lose the possession battle, which we didn't. Um, I, I did think at the time, and I said at the time, that would not work against a team like Miami um, in the second round. That wouldn't be enough because you need to, you needed more guys. You needed more dudes, you know, really to command the defense's attention. And, um, you know, he tried to dial quickly back up, but it's, it's really hard to spend five games being Quentin Grimes basically. And then be like, Hey, I need you again. Go be Emmanuel quickly. Like, I think that's pretty tough. Um, but, when I watch that Miami series, it's just like so palpable to me, the difference in, you know, you see the way Spolstra's using like Gabe Vincent and fucking Strews and all these dudes off ball. Like there's so much eye candy, right? It's like, there's no eye candy in the Knicks offense. It's just like, here's what we're doing. And there's, there's no fucking disguise. This is not like, no, this is power. eye basketball. We got the fullback back here. We're fucking two tight ends. We're running goal line set offense like every fucking play. And there's no deviation from it. And like, you know, if could you tell me that like, yeah, get a better star, like, is that viable? Yeah, maybe. But like, if that's the only way that you can improve and that's the only way you're willing to improve, then fundamentally, I, I just think your ceiling is capped with that that approach and that coach. And like, the reason I wanted to ask you about this is isn't that kind of like what one of the issues was with the Warriors under Mark Jackson, where it was like everything was just on these guys to create an ISO stuff, and there's not a lot of shit happening off ball, and like then you get Steve Kerr, and it's like, yeah, not only do I want, am I going to encourage Steph to take seven bajillion threes a game, but we're going to do all this fucking shit and have these guys run around off ball and create chaos and all this, all these type of things. Like I feel like that was part of it too, but I'm open to potentially being totally wrong about that. Well, no, I, I mean, I think, I think that's a huge part of it. I, I think the difference is, and this is where I think it's tricky is like the Warriors had Steph Curry and Clay Thompson um, and Draymond Green really. And like the year that Steve Kerr became the coach also happened to be the year that David Lee got hurt in preseason, which forced Draymond Green into the starting lineup. Um, they also happened to have a guy in Andre Iguodala who was like willing to move back to the bench that year, a veteran, like they had a really special mix of players and Kerr came in and unlocked everything and took them to another level. Um, but it, it's hard for me to like, look at this Knicks team, like the 2013, 14 warriors. I'd almost look at them more like, I mean, it's hard to compare them to any Warriors team just because the Warriors had Steph Curry again. Um, and I, I, I'm curious, like, you know, is their ceiling... Their ceiling is capped, I think, by roster and 
coach right now. So I don't know if like one move is the answer. Like, you know, would having the best coach in the league make this a championship contender? Would I, I don't think so. Let, so. Let, Simon, like, Simon, can I just ask you this real quick while yeah, you're on the topic? Yeah. Let's just say the 2014 Warriors had Jalen Brunson instead of Steph Curry. Would you right. be like, well, there's no point? Would you be like, well, there's no point in replacing Mark Jackson with Steve Kerr? Because, well, no, I think, lover. no, I, I, not at all. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I, I think that's kind of the question is like, you know, if you bring in the right player, like if the Knicks need both, which I think they do, does it make sense to do essentially like one at a time? And if so, does it matter what order you do those things in, right? Like if the Knicks, if the Knicks bring in, let's say, let's say they hire Nick Nurse. I don't know who like the, your dream coach would be that's on the market, but like, let's say it's Nick Nurse and Monty Williams. Monty. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually, I, I actually, I really like Monty Williams. He's an awesome dude. Um, but he has a lot of similar issues to Tibbs, it seems. Yeah, yeah. He also designs I, cool plays. Yeah, he does he design cool plays. Cool plays. Yeah. I think I think Monty would be an upgrade. Um, but but the point is, like, we could get into that if you if you guys have like thoughts on this. I think it's important, though. Again, like I said earlier, you can't just you can't just fire a coach for the sake of doing it if you don't have a better replacement, like clearly in mind. And and the Warriors got lucky with that, by the way, like they were so close to having to hire SVG. Um, They were, they were, they were going to, but like, but Van Gundy, basically he turned them down, right? Because he did, he wanted front office control. Yeah. Yeah. He wanted front office control. And I guess, yeah. So I don't even know what direction they were going to, they were going to have to go if, if that didn't end up working out and they didn't get Kerr. Um, Just imagine you but, could have traded for Tobias Harris and Blake Griffin. <laughs> There's a lot of could have had Kevin Love. Could have um, had Kevin Love. Yeah, I think that, but I think that, like, you know, you need to give Joe Lacob gets a ton of credit for like being bold enough to just like take that kind of swing. I don't foresee the Knicks doing that right now. Like, it, it'd be hard for me to imagine that after like the best year they've had in a decade. Yeah, I They're going to move on from Tibbs. Like, I, I just really don't see it. I think it's almost a year after that that it might happen, where it's like, this year is like the 2012 Warriors, right? Where Mark Jackson, like, brought them back. And they won, they won a series um, that they, like, they, they fight against yeah. the Spurs. They should have won that series. Yeah, they should have. Um, but, but then... Everybody forgets they should have won game one. Yeah. They blew, they blew a 25-point lead in San Antonio, and then... One game was two, that. That was up that was the RJ uh, missed free throws down the stretch. They, they lost that in double OT because, like, Kent Bazemore had a what should have been a game winning layup with like three seconds left, and then Harrison Barnes, rookie Harrison Barnes, you know, just completely fell asleep on a switch, and Manu hit a hit a game winning three. But um, but the, the point is like so that year's team, like Mark Jackson, was never getting fired after that season. Mm-hmm. The next year, they made the Iguodala move. They had outgrown the coach, as you said, Jeff. And then it's kind of like, now you lose in round one. Now the pressure's on. I mean, there was also just a lot of shit going on behind the scenes with Mark Jackson, like that. I don't think is really an issue with Tibbs. But you don't, you don't I, think that you don't think Tibbs I, is preaching. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Preaching isn't wasn't the worst thing that was happening, but uh, but like the point the point being like that's why I ask about like the sequence of moves. I almost wonder if like 
you need to get the roster to the point where it's really like feasible to move on from a coach who is like frankly elevated this team like based on their current roster. Jeff, I want you to ask Simon about your hypothetical trade that you posted yesterday. Okay. Um Simon, Randall and salary filler for yes. Melton. Oh, Tobias I thought you were gonna Harris. say Jordan. I thought you were gonna say Jordan Poole. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, please. If you want, to, if you Honestly, want tips we... to quit, that would be a way. He might like him with Jordan Poole. Like he, Emmanuel quickly shot selection gets him in hot water with tips sometimes. I think he would like. He would probably kill himself if, if Jordan Poole was on his team. <laughs> <laughs> quickly, quickly, either takes the wrong shots or doesn't shoot, and Tibbs is mad both ways. Like Tibbs, Tibbs hate when quickly doesn't shoot wide open shots, and then quickly will randomly pull up from thirty feet, and Tibbs will have another heart attack. But anyways, um, yeah, Randall and salary filler for Melton, Tobias Harris, and a first round pick. I think you said two first round uh, picks, right? Yeah, but then somebody commented that the Sixers can't deal two picks. Okay, whatever. That's fine. So let's, let's just let's just say let's yeah. just say one. I mean, that's I don't see why the Sixers would do that. I think <laughs> that'd be a great trade for the Knicks. Absolutely. I, see, it's very it's very funny that you say that because all the Knicks fans were roasting me for why would we do this, and I was like, I'm pretty sure the Knicks wouldn't do it because they wouldn't they wouldn't want to trade Randall for less than what he is like on an individual, but like the Sixers wouldn't do it because it would be bad value for them, which makes me like very confident that if we were able to view this objectively and there weren't like player emotions involved, if we could just like actually make this trade in a vacuum, the Knicks would actually be getting the better side of that. And and actually, and that, that specifically, I've thought about that trade a lot. I've actually also thought about like, what if the Knicks just like traded Randall for, sign and trade Draymond Green. Like I think about that sometimes. I'm like, is this fucking insane? Like it probably is insane, but I don't know. Like I Draymond's so fucking weird and I like am bipolar about him, so it's always bizarre to me. Um, Schwinn, here's the thing about that trade. We would have to live in a world Oh god Tibbs. Do you understand how unbearable it would be where no, we'd have to deal with Steve Kerr tra- unlocking Julius Randle. <laughs> that Steve Kerr Steve Kerr would Steve Kerr would get Randall. He would find a way to get Randall to be like super Draymond Green, the super Draymond Green that we've all envisioned. I know he doesn't have Draymond's wingspan or defensive instincts, but like, can you imagine hit him downhill on the short roll with Steph Curry? Like, I, holy I, shit. I often like to imagine Randall, you know, setting screens with vigor and rolling with more energy than any ever before. But um, no, I actually think... He doesn't even have to when Steph's the ball handler. You don't have to be a good screener. You just have to be there. I'm just not sure I'm ready to watch a Jalen Brunson, R.J. Barrett, Josh Hart, Draymond Green, Mitchell Robinson starting lineup. I'm not sure the world is ready for that one. But like, no, I, I... Like, this is... So the tips thing is... He's going to be back next year, and and you know, right. people can like. And that's what Simon. That's what Simon said. That was like just mostly spot. Yeah, on. Like, like he's going to be back next year. Entirely spot on. Yeah. He he's not getting fired. Like yeah. he's and 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 his example of this being next year being the 2013 2014 Warriors season is also on point. I would say like there's going to be pressure on Tibbs to succeed. Yeah, and I'm and I'm pretty sure that the Knicks are going to make. It's not going to be, you know, Iguodala. Like, it, it, they're going to make a move this summer. 
I don't think it's going to be a cat. Like, I don't think it's some stupid superstar trade, but I think it'll be, think of like Celtics getting Brogdon last summer, something like that, where it's like, no, we're getting you another really solid fucking player that makes this a better team. Like they're going to, they're going to add somebody this summer. I'm almost positive about that. Um, but like the tips thing, it is what it is. I think you really, the reason why I want to trade Randall is I think the way he plays and yes, some of that is, you know, it's on Tibbs because Tibbs uses him in very, very specific ways. But inherently, if you have Julius Randall, I think you are going to play in a way that caters to him. And I think the Knicks need to evolve where they are catering to Jalen Brunson almost entirely. And in catering to Jalen Brunson, it is pretty easy for me to envision that helping R.J. Barrett, helping Emmanuel quickly, helping Quentin Grimes, giving them more oxygen in the room, so to speak, um, by taking out Randall's not just usage, but the way he derives that usage and bringing in somebody like a Tobias Harris, who is no, he's not Julius Randall. He's not, he's never going to have the type of seasons we've seen Julius Randall have. But what he is, is a perfectly competent, complimentary player who can do damage playing off the ball and doesn't require you to dictate so much of your offensive play and run so much of your offensive play through him. Um, now he's and also looks like he's suddenly become like a good defender. Yeah, yeah, he played. He, he was his the one. Game, his game six defense on Tatum was unbelievable. He, he played, and, and in the first half of yesterday's game, he also looked great. I don't, I don't know. We can, I mean, that second half was just its that, own that, kind of that, thing. That, I, I, I also thought, Yeah, I, I think it was too. I also that game also did make. I was thinking about this before we started this convo um, today, but like. Sometimes it does feel a little unfair in the playoffs. Like, like somebody has to win every series, and like, like Schwinn and I were saying, like, I don't know how much Doc really could have done differently there, and like, he he might still deserve to like get fired overall. But it's one of those things where it's like, if if Philly got it done on the road then it's like Boston is really fucked, right? Like Joe Missoula, like this whole... So it's like someone was going to win that series. And it's like, it, sometimes it is it is a little bit hard to like have too much of a takeaway. Um, yeah, and I, I think... From, yeah, I, I think the biggest thing is, and this is why I feel like they probably keep Tibbs. We can sit here and be like, it's stale. Like it, it's the same thing over and over again. The team clearly hasn't tuned out Tibbs, which is really important. Um, and the second thing is, like, let's be realistic. Like, the Knicks have been a fucking shit show for most of our, like, what, the, the in the 21st century. They've been a fucking shit show. If you find a relatively safe foundation, it's maybe okay for them because of their history, their recent history anyways, to wait a year too long than pull the trigger a year too early. Um, and I, I'm I'm honestly pretty sympathetic to that. Like and I'm okay with that, but I I I really strongly believe um and this is for a totally different reason this offseason. I think they need they can't come and they're going to. They're gonna come back with Julius and Tibbs. Um, but like I think it's 
they should be very open to looking at offers for Julius Randle because I think you need to change your identity offensively. And I really don't know if you can do that with Randall still here, especially since Tibbs is going to be back. That, now, I don't think they should be for Like, last summer, I was, and I was dead wrong, but I was like, you've got to fucking trade Randall. Get this fucking guy out of here. I don't feel that way now, but, like, I think you really need to be open to offers for him. And, like, I, I don't think you you should be viewing it like, well, we need to get back. We should attach picks to Randall to get to to get a superior individual player, and that's the only scenario where we move Randall. Like, I think the the trade you suggested, I think that's like honestly the type of trade I'm very willing to make. Um, that trade also has like what the reason I liked it initially when you said it is like you might be losing the best player in the trade, but you're doing two things simultaneously, or three, really. You're improving your depth. You're getting two rotations. Yeah, and players. I love Melton. You're, I love Melton. Yeah, and then that that's the second thing, is you're getting two guys who just are like plug-and-play, fit, whatever you do next. And then the third thing is you're deepening like the asset, you know, the assets that the team has in order to make that kind of, it's like it's like a step to the type of trade that people probably want to construct right now, like Randall plus assets for a superstar. It's like it's probably easier to bring in the star post this trade, um, and, and then also the team is probably in more of a finished place at that point. Um, so, so I love that type of construction. I, I wanted to ask you because Schwinn, you were saying like everything should be geared towards building around Brunson now, and like maximizing Brunson do you think it's possible to go too far with that when like if the team is still that like top tier player away from winning a championship can would it be possible to go too far towards building around his specific strengths and weaknesses and then being a little bit off course because you don't know who that like final piece is going to be um I I'll I'll answer this and I'm curious to get Jeff's thoughts on it too um I think Jalen Brunson, like offensively, I honestly don't know if it's possible to fuck up focusing building around him because of his ability to play on and off ball, to be effective as an on and off ball offensive player. We didn't see a lot of the off ball stuff because Tibbs doesn't do that. Um, but like we saw that in Dallas. Like he's clearly very comfortable playing off of a high-usage megawatt superstar like Luka Doncic, right? We saw him be very effective. And then the fact that he can, you know, dial up his usage when he comes to New York and when Luka was out last year, like, that just shows you his versatility. So I think it's really hard. Now, if you want to say that if you focus so much on Brunson, you're never going to run, you're not going to be, like, a transition-based team, I would say that, like, he's really never had the opportunity. And honestly, at times this year when Randall was out, we saw the Knicks run a lot and with Brunson on the floor, like he, he's not unwilling, I guess is maybe the thing. You're not going to be, you know, fucking the, the warriors running like, you know, 105 pace or whatever the hell it is. But like, you're going to, you can play faster than the Knicks do. That's for damn sure. Um, but like, yeah, I, I don't know if it's, if it's an issue. And like, I also just think that when he plays with Randall off the floor, 
I think you see guys like RJ Barrett and and I think you'll see guys like RJ Barrett quickly Grimes those guys will benefit from that or maybe not they'll benefit from it in terms of they will get opportunities now where it's like you know this this year right it was it was like anytime you needed a bucket it was like all right it's on Brunson it's on Randall right I feel like with Randall out you will now have moments where it's like all right it's on rj it's on quickly it's on these guys and it's like yeah is there a risk that they struggle in those moments sure but um i think i want to find out and i i actually suspect that maybe they'll initially struggle but they'll be better for it and they'll come out uh better players for it in the end but um yeah jeff sorry i want to turn that over to you oh no um i think you raised a really good point about i'm not i'm not gonna say that i think simon was wrong but just from an outside perspective, one thing that I think Simon might not have been giving proper credence to, and that's that, no, the Knicks do not have a Steph Curry. I will, I'm 100% sure the Knicks do not have a Steph Curry. Second best I'm point guard ever. I mean, I, I, genuinely, I genuinely think he's a top five player of all time. Oh, I do. Um, I do now. I was thinking about I, this. I, 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 I was thinking about this during I, uh, the playoffs this year, and I was like, I think he's top five now. Like, I think that's where we're at. Yeah. Um, and that's that's amazing, like just amazing for Warriors fans, amazing for him. Like, I mean, people we're so far past him signing four for forty two because he had ankle injuries. Like, how how did his ankles just magically decide to not get hurt? Any like it's all Joe like amazing career. I think yeah. I think he did one thing that I think was under did he go to discussed. Germany? I probably, but uh, <laughs> he I think he learned to start like falling mm. and to stop like trying to like brace himself as much um which you know led to some other injuries for him but i think i think that helped with the ankles but but you were saying uh jalen brunson yeah, um, is, is Steph Curry. So, Let me... he's better no actually. no no i i i don't think we have or i know we don't have a steph curry but i'm not 100 percent sure that they don't have other potential supporting pieces i, I i'm not going to say that quentin grimes could be clay thompson he does have an elite shot release that is almost uncontestable and is already a well above average defender. Could he be, you know, if he was, if we were running more, you know, actions for him, if he was getting more shots, like in the flow of the motion, if there was just more movement in general, what would he look like? I'm not going to, I'm not going to do the clay's only good because he played with Seth thing. I obviously that help. Obviously that helps, you know, like, but my point is, is that, you know, there is, I believe with quickly Grimes and RJ, there there is something there. You know, I'm incredibly high on quickly. Um, and part of making a trade like that. Um, oh, and I wanted to say earlier when when Simon said we're, we're not gonna we're not gonna fire uh, Tibbs, I agree with that. And I, I actually, like I said earlier, I'm not 100 percent sure they should trade or uh, fire Tibbs, but I. I don't think you can. We said this last summer. I don't think you can come back with both Randall and Tibbs. I think to what Schwinn was saying and where I'm going with this is at least one of them has to be gone just to just to open up more doors for this team to run more plays through RJ to try and give him you know a bit of a higher ceiling offensively to run more offense through quickly and then also like you guys were saying Tobias Harris is a plug and play but we're not gonna oh, he's got to be on the court all times because he's our power forward. Right. It would force Tibbs to it would force Tibbs to embrace the versatility of the roster a little bit more and say, okay, R.J. Barrett has, during the regular season, probably disappointed a little bit 
but I've only played him at small forward. I've probably played him at shooting guard more than I've played him at power forward. Maybe he's just the backup power forward right now. Let's see. Let's see what RJ looks like with three shooters on the court. What would a lineup of Brunson, Quickly, Grimes, RJ, and Mitchell Robinson look like? We've never seen that before. Never seen it. What would RJ look like running one, four pick and rolls with Jalen Brunson and two shooters on the wings? We've never seen that. And Simon, I know that sounds crazy to you because your last 10 years have been space and shooting and all that lovely stuff. We don't know what that looks like. And part of that is because of the roster construction. And part of that is because of the head coach. And just one of those has to change. We can't just, can't just do that again. Do you think there's a coach like my mind goes to Nick Nurse right away, but like, do you think that there's a coach out there that would be like, yeah, I don't know, an ideal replacement? I don't have a name for you. I, I have people in mind, but I will say this. When we hired Leon Rose, Leon Rose sat down with James Dolan. I shouldn't say we, I'm sorry. When the Knicks hired Leon when Rose. When the Strickland hired Leon sat, Rose. And, and, he, and, and, he, and he sat down <laughs> with James Dolan. He said, this is a league with a hard cap. So we live in New York City. We make all this revenue. We have all this money. But there's we can't take advantage of that from a player department. We have to find the areas that are uncapped and exploit those areas. And I think the Warriors are incredibly intelligent with this too. There is no team in all of sports that spends more on its analytics department than the Knicks. The Knicks are, and nobody knows this because, you know, the Knicks are the laughing stock of, you know, that's we're still a meme. Um, but no team in all of sports spends more on its analytics department than the New York Knicks. I find it impossible to believe that there aren't people up there who are like, man, there's just so much meat on this bone. Like there, there have to be people who understand that, like, and I I bet it's the same people who figured out, okay, we have Tibbs. We're not going to run plays. What is the best path forward to, to building an elite offense around this core of players and this coach? Oh, okay, well, we have to win the possession battle. Let's just crush on the offensive glass and not turn it over ever. And then I, I guarantee you, like, they helped build that offensive system. And my point is, is, like, I'm going to bring it back to Darvin Ham. Nobody thought, Dar- like, Dar- Darvin Ham has come in, and he's done a really good job, and he's shown that he can adjust. So I- I'm not a true believer that, like, there are only a handful of guys. I think there are plenty of guys out there who, with the right information and the right guidance, would make certain adjustments, be flexible, and do a generally good job. I just think that as good as Tibbs is at certain things, he's too dug in. He's coached for too long. And as long as his hand is on the wheel, he's not going to let it off, let his hand off the wheel enough to for there to be enough flexibility to increase your ceiling. That's my personal opinion. But, but... If you're going to keep keep him like the Knicks are, then you gotta you gotta take some of his vices away from him. And Julius Randle is a vice for him. It's it's a drug almost. Like if Julius Randle's on the team, he's going to play 40, 35 to forty minutes every night. The offense is going to be run through him. We're going to run a lot of ISOs. I mean, you remember how excited Mark Jackson got when Harrison Barnes got a mismatch in the mid post. Like this is this is that on steroids. Like this is. So that's why I'm saying that I think at least one of them's got to go. I'm sorry that was a little bit long. No, not at all. Actually, one of the things I was thinking about, um, I remember I, I, I've i been looking for this forever. I can't remember where I read it. But it was like 
when they were talking about, you know, so they hire Steve Kerr, and then that offseason is when they had this entire thing where it's like, are they going to trade for love, right? And I think one of the things, Jerry West came on board that offseason too. And I think when they were talking about it, one of the things Jerry West said is like, like you've only seen Clay Thompson in the offense that Mark Jackson runs. Like, wait until you see what this guy is going to do with what Steve Kerr is going to run. Where, like, you're not just having him stand in the corner, wait for the ball, or, like, ISO when, you know, he gets a mismatch, or whatever it is. You're going to run him off the ball. You're going to use him in all these different ways. You're going to open up his cutting ability. You know, it's, like, people forget, like, it's not just that Clay can run off fucking staggers and hit threes. Like, he's actually a really good cutter going to the rim, too. Um, and that's, like, stuff that wasn't there in their offense before. And I'm not saying, like, quickly as Steph Curry and Grimes is fucking Clay and no, but like I, I think RJ, Quick, Grimes, Brunson even, like I think these guys can play like they're they're a they can do more offensively and you can do you can be a more versatile offense than we have seen. And are you ever going to get to that point with Tim where he's running all this fucking motion and shit? No. And I'm I'm okay with that. Like I don't need him to be Steve Kerr, I think that's an unreasonable expectation. But there's, there should be more of a balance, and I don't think it's possible. I, I almost think if you have Randall on the team, I don't know if it's fair to even expect Tibbs to run some super, like to to have more motion and more and more stuff on, on, on in the offense because like between him and Brunson, like that's just a lot of usage that you're gonna that you have to put on those guys and like. You know, is it realistic to expect him to install all this fucking motion and shit? If he, I don't think so. Um, and so, like, for as long as you have both those guys here, I think you have to accept that this is how we're going to play. And I'm not totally sure. Like, yes, I still think that you can do more off ball um, to make life easier for them. But fundamentally, at your core, you're going to be this ISO heavy team. And um, that is what it is like i don't know how much of that can really change with a coach if the players don't change like i think players probably influence play style um more in a lot of ways than a coach i mean i know the current thing is always like well, you went from the most pass like the least passes linked to the most passes. well the no but i but to that point like i and i i do want to talk about the current warriors at some point here yeah you, you um, can do that as, as part as i was you know promised in my in my contract (laughs) just kidding but uh but i i it is one one other parallel i would make is like the 2020 21 warriors the year that you know steph was back from injury but clay tore his achilles right before the season the year when uh uh, when the grizzlies took over the west as we like to exactly yeah (laughs) um like that year was a perfect example of okay yes you have steve kerr but the roster he had was like Kelly Oubre, Kent Bazemore, <laughs> Eric Pascal, like just a bunch of dudes who like didn't make any sense in a Steve Kerr offense. Um, and to Bob Myers credit, he like learned from those signings and was like, okay, I just need like Auto Porter. I need like the the ghost of Auto Porter, and he's gonna do more for me than like those guys combined. I just need like Bielitsa and people who can shoot an open shot, make a quick decision, and just like set a screen. Um, and so like 
even even if you have that elite, like you just need that kind of alignment, right? Like from front office to coach to roster and ownership, obviously, like to be willing to shake things up uh, to get that alignment. But it's like that organizational organizational alignment, I think, is key. And I think the Knicks have a good amount of it right now. I think the question is really like, can they pivot in the right spots there in, in that aligned way, right? Like, are they willing to, obviously there's like, Tibbs has great relationships within the front office. Like, are, are they going to be willing to make those hard decisions and then adjust the roster accordingly to like whoever they bring in? I think like that's, that's really going to determine if they can hit their ceiling. Yeah. And like, Simon, Simon, you, uh, you asked earlier and I, I realized, I realized I didn't answer your question. Um, about who building around Brunson you would like pair him with or who you would. I think that I, this is going to sound like a really lame answer because like who wouldn't these guys work with? But I think the Knicks are going to be very interested in both Embiid and Giannis. Oh, um, yeah, and Embiid. I think, I think the reason, I think the reason for both of them is because that they're obvious. Okay. The non-obvious reason for both of them is that their shortcomings historically have been end of game like initiation and end of game scoring and that's Jalen Brunson's biggest strength and Jalen Brunson's biggest weakness is defense he's a sieve at the point of attack he's bad at navigating screens he was good in game six on defense by the way I will say that he was relatively good I'll say he was relatively good especially considering the toll and his ankle I I can care but he's just always going to be he just is what he is on defense and Giannis and Embiid, well, more so Giannis. I have my own thoughts about Embiid's defense, but theoretically, both of these players are very helpful at defense at covering for mistakes. Um, and so, one of my worries about Jalen Brunson is that if you pair him with a superstar who's more of like a wing, who is like, and especially like an offensive wing, like Devin Booker, other answers, you're kind of bringing on diminishing returns because Jalen Brunson's biggest strength is what he can do with the ball in his hands. And even though, like Schwinn said, he's gotten, he, he's, he's good off ball and we probably didn't see enough of it. I still think that the best chance you have of doing the Steph Curry thing where you pair him with a star and it's the least possible diminishing returns is pairing Jalen Brunson with a big who can play defense and doesn't need to command the ball from an isolation standpoint. So I think they're going to look for a big like that. To Christoph like Porzingis, bring him back. <laughs> I so that non facetiously right? think that's like an interesting thing, but he's always he's injury prone. I get it. There's also baggage there, but like you know, I, I don't know. I here like you don't you like you want a specific thing that's very frustrating with Tibbs. We never saw Brunson get reps like five out really, and that dude is a killer when you give him space. So. Man, if you get like a spacing five, like I mean, Brooke Lopez is out there this offseason. I don't know if you like trade Hartenstein for something, and then you brought in Brooke Lopez. Like that's not unreasonable to me. I, I would be interested in that. Maybe, um, obviously, Brooke probably would want to start. So what do you do with Mitch? Okay, whatever. But like, you get what I'm saying is like, I think there are ways to evolve the roster that they need to look at. Um, and it's like at that point. To, your, to what you were talking about earlier in terms of like firing Tibbs or moving on from Tibbs, um, like you can, if you give the guy the tools and then he doesn't take it, that's on him. But like as a front office, you, you, you should always 
be willing you, you should be looking to evolve and add to your roster at all times right so like if you're like any of us just common you know person sitting out here like if you're just like yeah like you know Knicks could use like a stretch five option yeah like if you could go get Brooke Lopez or something like that like it should at least be a consideration um even if you don't think Tibbs is going to maximize it or use it the way that you would ideally like to that's that's a Tibbs issue you know that's not a that's not that shouldn't influence your your choices as a front office um at least not as far as like um the the actual kind of i don't even know the, the just like you should consider what your coach wants but you shouldn't um like totally accede to his desires as a coach right like like the Knicks shouldn't have traded for Cam Reddish because they should have known that Tibbs is not going to play Cam Reddish much and he's not going to have the time for him. But you can't not get like, you can't, like the Knicks can't not trade for Josh Hart because Tibbs won't use him at the four. You know what I mean? Like that's a stupid, like you can't do that. Um, but I want to, you know, we have talked about the Knicks for a long time. Surprise, surprise on a Knicks podcast. Um, yeah, like the Warriors had... You know, they had a season, definitely an interesting season. Um, what what the hell happened with Jordan Poole this year? Uh, I mean, I think there's a few things here. So, like, be, I'll be, be a little more, like, level-headed about it than I think when we discussed it mid-season. Um, I think the biggest thing is that, like, have to remember who Jordan Poole came into the league as and like that he was actually one of the worst like rookies of all time um and his development was pretty incredible from there he went to the G League in his second year during that 2021 season we talked about um he came back like a changed player he seemed to just like get it all of a sudden um and was like processing the game making the right decisions pretty much every time like just quick decision making like he knew when to shoot he knew when to attack he knew when to keep the ball moving and he did those things quicker than pretty much anyone else like he's he's one of the quickest players in the league he has like incredible first step just like quick twitch athlete um and when when focused an amazing handle um, it's when he like starts kind of dancing that you realize his handle's not actually that great. Um, but that was, th- that's kind of the, the, the biggest frustration is like Jordan Poole is not like the most talented shooter. He doesn't have the best handle. He doesn't have, he's not like an incredible finisher around the rim or even a great passer by any stretch, but like, it was actually his processing and decision-making and playing within the system that was like setting him apart, um, you know, down the stretch of that season. And then just from the gate last season, like preseason, he was dropping like 30 a night. And it was like, oh my God, but the Warriors have a third like potential all-star guard here. Um, and he had an incredible regular season, a very good postseason the problem started to arise in the Memphis series when you, when like jaw would go at him 
and you started to see like, okay, in a playoff series, this guy has specific weaknesses that might actually cap his like ability to play super heavy minutes. Um, and by the finals, he was playing like 20, 15 to 20 minutes a game. Um, and Gary Payton, the second was really had like kind of replaced him as the top guy off the bench. So like some of his limitations as a player became clear last season, but he also had like people forget because of how that finals went. He had an incredible first three rounds. Like his efficiency was completely off the charts. Um, and the Warriors don't just straight up don't make the finals without him. Um, maybe they don't even win in the finals without him, given that he hit like two momentum shifting half court shots in, in game two and game five. But the point being like, that was kind of who he was coming into the season. I think a couple things happened. One is that prog- like progress isn't linear. So the league did adjust to him. Um, a lot of players have that as like their sophomore slump after successful rookie seasons. I would say this was kind of a fourth year slump in that sense for him in certain ways uh, because he really established himself in his third year. I will also say that I started to see a lot of like what I call Russell Westbrook-esque tendencies, which is essentially like making a very, what seems to a lot of people on the outside, like a very obvious mistake that is easy to adjust to, such as getting blocked at the rim. Like every time you drive into like crazy traffic and don't add any sort of like pump fake or like any, you know, you don't seal the defender off in any way. Uh, It's not a surprise you get blocked. And it's like not being able to see that and do it differently the next time down the floor or the next game, that stuff's concerning. But then there's the complicating factor of, okay, he got like punched in the face by his teammate before the season and how much, and, and also like, why did Draymond punch him in the face? I mean, you don't want to speculate, but it's like ostensibly Draymond was frustrated by his like, general mentality and inability to like listen to the vets listen to the coaching staff um so you couple like those tendencies with that happening and it's not a surprise that he was even further oh like further checked out from like a i'm going to adjust my game standpoint I think the unfortunate thing for the warriors and where they need to kind of go this offseason is steve kurt didn't have the option to not play him. He cut his minutes as much as he could. He was playing like, I mean, in a couple playoff games, he played like 10 minutes a game. He was that bad, but he needed him. Kerr needed Poole to be like a 20 to 25 minute a game guy, at least because the Warriors have no ball handlers other than Steph Curry and nobody who can like generate offense on ball other than Steph Curry. Um, So I think Kerr was kind of stuck in this loop of like, if we are going to win a championship, we need Jordan to rediscover himself. Um, If I take him out of the rotation, then my team is just not good enough. If I keep him in the rotation and he keeps playing like this, my team is definitely not good enough. And that's ultimately what happened. He had one of the worst postseasons I've ever seen from an efficiency standpoint, and then also being like arguably the worst defensive player in the playoffs for any team. His decision-making was fucking crazy, man. Yeah. Everything about it. Shooting, decision-making, defense, just like 
it, it just impossible to watch. Um, so I think that that's really where this offseason starts. Like you said earlier, Jeff, like the Warriors could absolutely win a championship next year. I don't think it, they need to make some big swing this offseason. Um, I think it would be kind of silly for them to try to because Poole doesn't have that trade value to be like the central piece in getting a star. And so it would have to be like moving Wiggins or something like that. And I, I don't think that makes a lot of sense. I think what they're going to have to do well, is... Well, especially, especially with like, let's be honest. Hmm. The the Steph Clay Wiggins Dre Looney lineup wasn't just great; it was historically great. Like you have that five some coming back next season, all reasonably in their primes. Like that's that's a pretty damn good starting point. Yeah, and then you also have Peyton back, who I think will probably look a little better next year if he has a whole off season to kind of rehab. Um, he he clearly isn't himself like athletically. I don't know if he ever will be again because he is going to be thirty one. Um, but I think you'll get something maybe in between 2022 Peyton and, and this year's Peyton. Um, but that, that core is obviously a championship core. It literally won a championship the year before. And like Clay Thompson, as bad as he was against the Lakers on balance looks better than he did during that first season back. Um, I don't really see much like meaningful decline coming for Draymond right now. Like the way he's playing is kind of just like, fake dribble handoff and run to the rim. Like, I think he can keep scoring like that as much as he does. He, he's he's had, like, his two most efficient scoring seasons by far, the last two seasons of his career. He kind of just realized, I need to stop shooting threes, but I also need to, like, attack when when there's an opening. Um, and, and defensively... He's, like, he's, such a cere- he's such a cerebral yeah. player. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, it's, no, 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 you're good. But that's exactly what it is. Like, I, I think he's he's going to basically be who he is right now for a couple more years, at least. Um, Curry also, like, it's it's hard to see meaningful decline coming. He seems to, like, in some ways get better every year still. Um, I think it's just a, a pool trade, and it's figuring out, like, what team is still willing to take on this contract. I, I, I think there will be a team. I think their biggest thing they need to do is, like, find a desperate front office. I, I was talking to someone the other day, maybe Chicago, um, a team that's just kind of like trying to look to shake things up um, and and, and kind of just take back what they can get. Like, I don't think the Warriors are even concerned taking back another bad contract as long as it's a guy who can play like rotation minutes next season. They kind of did that when they traded D'Lo for Andrew Wiggins. Wiggins ended up being a lot better than even they expected in their like best case scenario, but it's that trade was predicated really more just on like, even if this guy is the same guy he's been in Minnesota, he plays a position of need. He can space the floor. He'll defend a little better than D'Lo. And if there's like a pool equivalent trade out there, I I really think that's, that needs to be the focus. Yeah. I I would be surprised if pool is back next year, Um, especially because it seems like they're going to bring Draymond back and I just don't think they're that that yeah okay they like you yeah, got punched yeah. in the face that, that could be that, I could have just said that also yeah. like like I think they were kind of wait they also couldn't trade him this season because of the extension right um we made and, the math like really hard to do it yeah so so maybe it might have already happened if if it was an option well, and I think the so if uh, no go ahead there you go Sean. oh I was just gonna say so speaking of you know whether they're gonna be back or not. 
there, I'm sure you saw there was just some news uh, a day or two ago regarding Kuminga. <laughs> um, and, you know, they, the front office said Kuminga and his team and the front office are going to work to see what Kuminga's f- future is. I'm curious because I feel like the two of them are kind of linked because they were in the same draft. Where do Moody and Kuminga lie in all this? Like, are they are they apart? Uh, do we still think that because because both seem uh, maybe they get overrated because they're Warriors and that's kind of like how things work when your franchise is that successful. But it does seem like they've had their flashes and could be a part of this core if maybe I I could be dead wrong about that. But. No, I, I think Moody really established himself um, this postseason. Honestly, a lot of Warriors fans are critical of Kerr for not making him more a part of the rotation during the season. But it's funny because like one, one of the most frustrating things about like the Warriors fan base to me is that there's this crazy contradiction of like criticism around the team trying to develop its young guys while competing for a championship. And then also criticism of them not playing the young guys and that like that, that criticism coming from the same people. Um, Kerr tried to play Wiseman, Kaminga, and Moody this season. Like, they were all part of the rotation to start the season. And frankly, like, none of them were good enough to stay in the rotation. Uh, Moody looked the best of the three at times. Kaminga looked the best at times. Obviously, Wiseman is a whole other thing. Um, But I think by the playoffs, Kerr was kind of ready to lean on those both of them a little bit more. The, The issue, I think, was an attitude one where... Moody was just like ready to step in um, and happy with his role in Kaminga, who admittedly did have a role reduction because he was playing a lot more during the regular season. I, I just don't think he responded well. And I think Kerr kind of like just didn't want to tolerate that in the postseason. I don't, I don't think he saw it as like worthwhile to, uh, to experiment with, you know, is this guy really like it's already enough of a risk to play someone that raw in playoff games and i think he was just gauging where his head was at and was like this is this is too much of a risk um and of course then the issue compounds itself where now he's becoming even more like you know you're losing him even more um i don't know how that plays out i don't think they want to promise anyone a role i don't think that's like the Warriors ethos is not like, oh, okay, you're unhappy. We're going to play you more next season. It's more like we've been doing this shit for a decade and like you need to either accept it or or not. But the problem with that is if I'm Jonathan Kaminga, I'm like, I'm fucking talented as shit and I need to get a chance to play. Like in two years, I'm going to need a, a an actual contract. Like I don't want to be a eighth, ninth, tenth man on a championship contender. And I completely understand that viewpoint for a young player. Yeah, I mean, I think he just needs... Like, the the hardest thing when you're... I mean, they're, Warriors are trying to win, right? They're trying to win every year. The hardest thing is developing talent while you're doing that because, like, you don't have the margin to just be like, well, it's, you know, it's a good learning experience for him. Let's let him take the lumps and then we can be better for it. It's like, no, well, we have Steph Curry... He's like still playing at an all-time level. We owe it to him, and we really owe it to ourselves as a franchise to like try to win fucking championships and win as many ball games as we can. And if that means that Jonathan Kaminga is better for us playing 15 minutes than 
giving him 25 where he can kind of learn on the fly and take lumps on the court and it doesn't hurt you. Like you don't have that opportunity on a, on a team as good as the Warriors. Um, I think that's a tough place for them, which is why I didn't really like that pick for them. I, it's just like a guy who really needs to work through a lot of shit. Um, like I, I was always on the, I, I thought, I, I, and that's why I liked the Moody pick because I was like, this is a guy you can probably develop, but like he kind of has a skill set that just is pretty easy to plug and play. Um, and I, I thought they should have taken Franz when they picked Kaminga, but like, you know, that's hindsight anyway. But I, I'm like very curious about the Warriors because they're going to be an interesting test case moving into this new CBA. We all know that their salary cap sheet is fucking bonkers. And that's been pretty manageable as long as you're willing to pay a lot uh, under the old CBA. But now we know that there are going to be a lot more restrictions when you go over that second apron under the new CBA. And, um, you know, they wouldn't have been able to sign DiVincenzo this year uh, in, in, if the new CBA rules were applicable. So, you know, like, I do wonder if there's some element of like, hey, look, like, we still want to compete, but we need to shave significant money off of this cap sheet and like Jordan Poole is obviously somebody who I think they're going to at least listen to offers for I wonder what they really want for him like you know I, I don't know you know who the cap space teams are but like you know is there a world where team X with space is like hey we'll give you like we have some a couple protected picks from another team like we'll just take Poole into space and we'll give you a couple of those picks. And is that something the Warriors are like, yeah, look, is this ideal? Probably not, but we need to get money off of our, our gap sheet here and let's get a couple of assets, you know, give us the opportunity to draft some guys down the line who, you know, are cost control contracts. And like, I'm like very, very curious about how we operate this offseason. And I got to say this, you have to believe that NBA teams and front offices specifically were aware that the new CBA was going to be more punitive on teams. I think it's crazy that like Cleveland and Phoenix and all these teams like were so aggressive in trading out future draft capital and, and young players and shit like that to make these big swings. Because looking at this CBA, like I think you're in a really disadvantageous position if you are pick encumbered and you're over the cap and likely to go over the apron. Like the restrictions in place now make that very, very difficult to um, stay a winning team for an extended period of time if you're in that position. So I'm very interested to see how the Warriors negotiate that. And I think. I'm also very interested to see how it potentially changes the value in star trades because I think the star trade market is just fucking ridiculous now where it's like every single one of these trades now is like all the picks, as many young players you could throw in, give us a pick swap, and that's the deal. And it's just like, okay, so I just locked in everything right now to go get Donovan Mitchell, to get Rudy Gobert. Like, I, yeah, don't, I, 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 I mean, it's like... These trades are just so crazy to me. And even like, like with Kevin Durant's awesome. Kevin Durant was 30, he's 34. 
Um, he, quite frankly, has not looked great to me in the playoffs the last couple of years when he's faced any type of physical defense. Um, I think there's real limitations there for him moving forward, but like, yeah, cause he's 34. That's not natural. Um, and I like, I don't know, like what does Kevin Durant guarantee you? Like he, he doesn't guarantee that you're a contender. Like he's not, that just not the reality of not just him, but most guys in the league, there are not many guys in the league that guarantee you're a contender. Um, and like, I don't know. I just think all these trades are so out of whack. And I, I really suspect that because of how punitive this new CBA is, that <coughs> you might see what goes out in trades for stars come down a little bit um, and, and be a little bit more reasonable than the type of shit that we've seen the last few years. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And I think, you know, to certainly to the Knicks credit, and, and but also to the Warriors credit, like they've actually done a really good job being restrained with like trading out mm-hmm. future picks um it's it, it was like frustrating for a lot of warriors fans this season that they didn't make like a move to bring in you know a, a jared vanderbilt or i mean a lot of people were obsessed with Jakob purtle for some reason i never I, personally I, I didn't want any of these moves to happen and, and the reason being is like i don't think the warriors were just like a player like that away from winning this year. Um, also, Jared Vanderbilt, like I love Jared Vanderbilt, but yeah. in the playoffs, he's kind of a, a one-way guy. Um, for very much Simon, so. when you say that, when you when you say that, Simon, do you mean that you just don't think that they were going to win, or you think that if they were going to win, they could have won the they could have won with this core anyway. So an extra player wouldn't have made a difference. No, I, I just didn't think I didn't think they were going to win. I honestly, I mean, we didn't really get into it, but I think that the biggest issue with the team this year, even more than Pools like on court production, was just the like tension that was there from the whole situation with him. And it wasn't just like the tension between him and Draymond; it was like palpable tension with him and Steph, him and the coaching staff. Um, I mean, Steph Curry got ejected from a nationally televised game in the fourth quarter for like throwing his mouthpiece out of frustration uh, with Jordan Poole. Like that's not normal kind of shit that happens. Um, and I think if you look at the road record, like I, I don't know crazy. if I've really, yeah. I don't know if I've really verbalized this anywhere. I've, I've talked about it in conversation, but like uh, to me, it was pretty obvious. Like to win on the road in the NBA when you're at home, you can just kind of feed off of your crowd as like an individual player. Like each, each guy can get hyped up playing at home and can kind of like ball out on their own. Right. Whereas when you're on the road, like the only way to really get energy is from each other. Like it's, it's just, it's just you and your teammates in this like road environment. I don't think the, a team that's won, you know, four championships and, won a road playoff game in 29 straight series is like intimidated to be in Charlotte in November. I think it's more just like they weren't able to kind of get juiced up for those games and stay connected. Um, and, and that was to me and, always. And the, also, yeah, oh, no, sorry, Sam. no, go, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I just wanted, I just wanted to say, I just wanted to plug uh, a Schwinn interview for just a second. Schwinn had a great interview a few months ago with a writer named Jake Fisher. And he talked about how um, 
this is probably the most parody there's ever been in the league. So not only yeah. are you going on the road, like like night to night, you know, you're playing teams that are competent and, and are going to give you a tough time if you don't have your best. And if you're a team that struggles on the road, if you're, to your point, if you're a team that can't get each other up for these road games, there aren't really too many cupcake road games either. Yeah, no, 100%. I think, I think the league is way more balanced. Like, just, I, I felt this the most watching OKC this year. Um, like, a team that I think most people expected to be near the bottom of the league. But, like, they just have all of these dudes who can, like, dribble up into a three and, like, knock it down. And it's, like, none of, like, none of these guys are even close to being all-stars. But it's, like, okay, who is this... Who is like early in the season? Obviously, I'm like, who is Jalen Williams? Who is this other Jalen Williams? Like, Josh Giddy's doing this shit too. And then they obviously have Shea. And it's like, this team is like loaded with dynamic offensive players. And they, none, I have, I, you know, I've barely watched any of these guys before. So it, it, that's just kind of where the league is at now. Um, or like Andrew Nemhart, like coming into Chase Center and dropping that was like, so crazy. sixteen points in the fourth <laughs> quarter. Like that's just where that's where we're at, and I I think that's a huge part of it. But um, the point the point being, yeah, I I didn't think the Warriors like were together enough as a team to win a championship. I know a lot of people think that shit doesn't matter, but like I've watched them win four championships. I I know how deep they have had to dig during each one of those runs, except for maybe the first KD year. Um, and that was like the most talented team of all time. So like, they don't even win the next year. They don't even beat Houston the next year if they're not like wired a certain way. Right. Um, that, that shit's hard to do. And I think that to their credit, they kind of sensed it. I, I'm sure Myers and Kerr, you know, were, in lockstep on this, that like it wasn't going to happen this year. Kerr even said during his kind of exit interview, like he said, "We're not a contender." Yeah, he said he yeah. said he thinks this team maxed out its potential this year. Um, so I, I give them a lot of credit for not kind of just throwing away one of their precious firsts that they have and uh, and keeping those assets flexible. So to your point, Schwinn, like especially everyone's going to need firsts more moving forward, and especially the Warriors. Yeah, I. I... Honestly, man, some of these teams, I'm like, like people like when when Phoenix went out, it's like, oh, they're interested in Fred Van Vliet, and like, I'm like, okay, that's cool. How the fuck are they getting Fred Van Vliet? Like, what is the mechanism they're using to to achieve this? Um, like, I, I man, I, I I gotta say, like, apparently Ishbia's taking a hands-on role in basketball operations. Let me tell you something, as a Knicks fan, I know for sure that's usually not a good thing uh, when an owner takes a hands-on role in, in the uh, day-to-day operations of a franchise. But like, I don't know. I, I kind of look at that Phoenix team and I'm like, man, are you guys fucked? I, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I it's I do you think they're gonna hire Tom Izzo is that like what is trending right now like you gotta, you gotta ask Isaiah Thomas apparently that's uh Ishbia's sounding board like everything I've heard about this guy I'm just like okay you went to Michigan State so I already know you're a fucking moron um and on top of that like you know he's got why are you listening to Isaiah Thomas like why is that the guy that you're like oh you know what you know who's had a great record in the NBA running shit Isaiah Thomas great executive track record just crazy to me like you know apparently he was out on monty as soon as he got there which like okay fine whatever you're allowed to not like a coach or whatever and move on but it just feels like he's he there was a reporting around the time they did the kd trade right that that was like 
him. He was just like, just fucking do it. Like, just give up everything to get KD. And it just feels like a guy who's very much trying to, like, be aggressive about winning. But every time one of these new owners comes in and starts doing this shit, it just never works. It's always, like, a bad idea. Um, We saw that last summer with the Timberwolves. Right, the Rudy Gobert thing, like, oh, new ownership. Let's let's get aggressive. Let's you know, let's we. Oh, we got destroyed on the glass against uh, against Memphis in the playoffs. I guess the only way, the only possible way to remedy this is to trade everything for Rudy Gobert. Like, I don't know. I I, I mean, at least the Suns. Tra- it was like a comparable package for KD. At yeah. least they at least they traded for KD. Right. It but, just it just. Why, yeah. I, I've just always been against these all in trades because I don't think the track record of them is not good and just like the worst place in anything like in anything you do in life the worst place to be is when you don't have pivots you don't have options like when you make these trades you don't have options like you can oh the buyout market okay cool and actually like look it's been fun to shit on the lakers but like you have to give polinka a lot of credit because he I mean, the people were saying last offseason, remember, how do you not just trade for Miles Turner and, and Buddy Heal? Just give up both the picks. Just give up both the picks. And tra- he waited, he waited, he waited, he waited. They gave up a top five protected pick, and they basically turned Russell Westbrook and Pat Bev and Thomas Bryant into D'Angelo Russell, Jared Vanderbilt, Malik Beasley, uh, you know, they got the Mobamba thing. Who like whatever he's. Can, they got they got Rui. Yeah, they got Rui. They, like, they like built out an actual rotation, and he didn't. He still has the you know they had two assets right. They had two picks basically. He's still holding on to one. They still have that now moving down the line if they can you know find another value deal or something. But like this is why you don't just rush into trading picks. Like I, I it's always weird to me when Knicks fans think it's like. Like, you know, the Embiid thing yesterday. Oh, they lose. Oh, man, I would risk it all for Embiid. Why? Like, did you just watch this guy? Like, like, forgetting how pathetic that performance was, he's never been to an Eastern Conference Finals. Doesn't that in and of itself tell you that going all in for a guy like that doesn't make sense? When has he proven that, like, if you if you just give me everything, I'm good enough to take you to the mountaintop? That's what a trade like that needs like that's what it's saying. Hey, this guy, we don't care that we're giving up all of our flexibility, all of our options, every pivot available to us because just by rostering this dude, we are guaranteed to be a contender. Like that how many guys are actually at that level in the NBA? Like LeBron isn't even at that level anymore. Okay? Like I'm at, like he had a great game 6, but LeBron by himself does not no longer does he guarantee you contention. Like, that's not what he is anymore. That's not really a criticism. The guy's fucking 38. Like, yeah, guess what? He's not as good as he was when he was 30. Big, big. Yeah. I just, I just, I just don't think there is a player right there. I agree. Right now. If, if by, if by, if by true contention, you mean like making conference, I think the league is too deep. It's too smart. I mean, Giannis yeah. has made two, has made two conference final. He won his first MVP in 2018, 2019. And his results are conference finals in 2018-2019, second round exit to the Heat in 2019-2020, title in 2020-2021, second round exit in seven to Boston last year, and first round exit. So that's he's made the conference finals two times in five years. Yeah. And that's the almost undisputed 
best player in the league. The only other guy would look be at like Jokic, Luka. Player, but you're never yeah, like, like Luka, everybody right. falls over themselves. And I get it. Like He's an amazing talent. He didn't make the playoffs. Like That should tell you something. That even right. like Luka Doncic, I don't even know how many games he played this year. But just having him... Theoretically, right? It was like, remember, you remember when we made the KP trade? It was like, man, I mean, they have Luca. What are those picks ever going to be worth? What, that pick could never possibly be good. And it's like, right. no, like, there's always the possibility. And, you know, it, they suck so much, we might not even get the fucking pick this year. Um, but, like, but, like, the, 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 these just things just prove it. Like, you know, just having these guys, the league, like you said, it's too deep, it's too smart. Like, and to the point you were making about OKC, it's like, You've got all these dudes, these young, talented players. Like, they're too young and stupid to not try hard, right? So, like, your regular season games now, like, it's probably it's hard. I'm sure it's hard for Steph Curry and Clay Thompson and Draymond Green, who have played in like God knows how many high stakes, high leverage games, right? It's hard to go to OKC on December 17th and like dial it up when Jalen Williams and these dudes are just coming full tilt at you the entire game. It's hard to dial it up because you're just like bored by it. You're like, I, and I think, don't I think do it's hard today. for, I think it's probably hard for LeBron. It's hard for Jimmy Butler. It's hard for all these dudes who like, like that's why you see these mid forties win teams now in the conference finals. Right. And the Warriors could have been one too, if they had beaten the Lakers. Um, it's just the regular season is, is kind of lending itself towards teams that have, you know, younger, younger cores. Now the question is like, I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with this. Cause it's like, takes us back to the Knicks too. Um, and I was wondering this during the conversation, like, is there somewhat of a market inefficiency now for like winning, contending for championships without these top tier stars? And like, if so, do you think that the Knicks might like have an untraditional path towards a championship or towards championship contention that doesn't involve bringing in a Giannis and Embiid, a player on that type of level? Um, I would say I think you still need one of those guys. I don't think you need two though. Um, like that much, I feel very confident about in looking around the league. Like I think it's safe to say this. I think Anthony Davis is a better basketball player in 2023 than LeBron James. But like yeah. but like and, and when he's healthy this year he's been fucking awesome especially in this playoffs even with his offensive up and down somewhat. But like when he's his defense right now is like honestly um <laughs> it's on another level. Like he's just been spectacular in defense to the point like that Memphis series was an ass kicking by him. Like he was just absolutely dominant in that series. So like, I still think you need like one of those MVP caliber superstar type of guys, but like the, the era of just get three guys and figure it out. That does not work. It doesn't work. Like we've seen too much of those teams failing, like the Clippers. What, I mean, are they even a contender? Like they're going to keep getting talked about as a contender. How are you a contender? Like, Kawhi's never healthy. I love Kawhi. He's never healthy. He hasn't finished a season healthy in, what, three years since the bubble. The bubble's the last time he finished a season and was actually on the court. 
He, he Except he was on the bench because they were getting blown out right. in, in game seven. <laughs> right. Yeah. But like he he's never healthy. Paul George misses a bunch of games every year. Then the depth they have is like wildly overrated, it feels like. they they remind me a lot of like those Blazers teams around the late nineties, early two thousands, where it's like, oh my god, they have Scotty Pippen and Detlef Shrimp, and I'm like, yeah, but it's like two thousand one. Like, that's not really that good. Like, oh my god, they have Robert Covington. Like, who fucking cares? Like, like what are we talking about here? Um, yeah, like, I, I don't know. I, I just think that era is over. And I think it's it's over for good. Like, you can't win like that anymore. The league is way too talented. The, the, the depth is just crazy. Um, like, there are players on dog shit teams that I'm a thousand percent sure could like step in and be viable playoff caliber rotation players. You know what I mean? Like that that's how stacked the league is. Like, and I'm not talking about like one guy. I'm talking about multiple dudes. Look at a team like Orlando. I mean, the Knicks won the season series against them. I fucking hated playing them. They were a bitch to play for the Knicks this year. Like they're and they're just gonna get better. You know what I mean? Like they're talented as hell and they're young. Like, you know, for you think Franz isn't gonna get better? You don't think Paolo's gonna get better? You don't think like you know, they're just ready to, they're primed. They're probably going to be, I think they will be a playoff team next year. Um, Especially and, when they trade for Jordan Poole. Yes. The, he's the, the missing piece for them. But like, it's, it's just, there's too much talent and there's too much depth and there's too many guys that give a shit. And you know what else? There's so much money in the league. I think these guys know that if they just can get their foot in the door, and they stay there. They're fighting so hard to stay in the league because the money now is crazy. Like it's, it's so you know, like we're talking about, like look at a, like the contracts some of these guys are getting, right? I mean, Josh Hart, love him. He didn't have a great. Uh, he had a pretty bad Miami series, to be honest. But like, he's probably going to make at least at least fifteen million a year, and he's a bench player for the Knicks, basically. Like that's the money is just so good now. If you lock in. And you're talented, and you just commit. Like you're probably going to walk into an eight-figure-a-year contract. Yeah, I, I, um, I, everything he says right. I, I think I just want to say to Simon's question. I, I'm probably a little bit more, um, a little bit higher on where the Knicks are right now in terms of their players. I don't. I, I think the Knicks are as close as any team in the league is to being able to be a title contender without one of those like true Giannis type stars. But I do think they would need to make like a move. But like, if you're asking, could the Knicks contend as their best player? So like, I don't know what do we think? He's like a top 20 guy, French top 20 guy, you know, but not, you know, a mega superstar. I think they'd have to replace – I think they'd either need major improvement from RJ to become that one of these level guys or just, like, replace him with what most are hoping he turns into, and that's, like, a McCall Bridges type. But, like, if in my opinion, if you put McCall Bridges on last year's team instead of RJ, I don't think it's outrageous to say that I, – I don't think there's a team in the league that I could say the Knicks just can't beat them. Um, I, I mean, I think a guy like Mikhail Bridges would fit in perfectly with what the Knicks need. Um, I think he would have been the third option. He can, he could have helped off the bounce. He would have helped defensively. He would have added shooting. 
he basically would have Tibbs would have rode him the way he rode Josh Hart, but he would have been able to do the things that Tibbs wanted him to do. And I mean, they would have been two to one, three to one betting dogs against Boston. They would have been maybe bigger dogs against Denver, but I, I don't think they would have been close to dead. I think they would have given any team a fighting chance. So again, I'm not saying they would have been title favorites, but to the spirit of your question, I think the Knicks have put themselves in a spot and it doesn't have to be trade RJ, by the way, it could be another move. I'm just saying that I, they would need to get one more good player in the Jalen Brown, Cal Bridges level and stick him in. And I think you add a player like that to this team in a reasonable way. I think this team's contending without a true star. And I think that's credit to the front office for what a good job they've done building this core. That's a burgeoning young superstar, Mikal Bridges, to you, um, <laughs> as I like to call him. <clears throat> 28 years old. 28 years young, playing for uh, that very, very well-run franchise over in Brooklyn. Um, all right. I think that's a good place to end it. That's our pod for today. Uh, Simon? Thank you so much for coming on. Let the people know where they can find you and uh, plug anything you'd like to plug. Absolutely. Um, always would love people to engage more with my personal tweets because they don't. Uh, Simon CGO on Twitter um, or, you know, at MBA on, on Twitter if you want to engage with those. Uh, nice, nice humble brag at the end there. I liked it. Uh, thanks again for coming on. Always a pleasure. Uh, Jeff, let the people know where they can find you and plug anything you'd like to plug. Um, I'm sorry. Were you just, I, that might've gone over my head. Are you saying you run the NBA Twitter account? I, I, yes, I, I, I do. Um, I work for the NBA social wow. team. And, and... That's so cool, man. I, yeah. I, we just talked for two hours and I had no idea. Congrats. Make sure you get some yeah. good John Morant tweets out today. We need to make sure that, uh, we need to make sure yeah. that he's doing a good... <laughs> I gotta go now. <laughs> um, I'm uh, at Frank Barrett 119. You know, uh, I actually do have something coming out for Strickland. I'm just going to do like a year in review um, article, but you know, just always Strickland merch, you know, do, you know, everyone who's listening knows the good stuff, you know, plug Strickland, all the good articles, podcasts we got. We're just going to keep putting stuff out there for y'all. So, and y'all make it possible. So thank you. And just keep helping us out. Yes. Uh, thank you for tuning in. The show is presented by Bet Online again. Uh, I have nothing to plug, so I'm going to, you know what I'll plug? I'm going to plug. I'm very annoyed that the Knicks lost this series. I'm also very okay with the season being over. Um, and I am quite happy to not have to care about the result of a Knicks game for the next however many months. I have no idea how you have had to watch high-stakes playoff games for year after year after year, Simon, um, because I struggled to get through two rounds here. Uh, it's been a while for me, um, but it was fun. Obviously, a great season for the Knicks, and I think even though they didn't end the way... I mean, you never end the way you want unless you win the championship, but like... Knicks fans should feel fucking good about this team. I think they should feel good about how they're positioned moving forward. Um, and, you know, we can all argue about various things. But overall, the Knicks are in probably the best position they've been in since 99 or something. Um, so, good spot. Uh, all right, that is our show for today. Hope everybody has a great week. And I will see you on Friday.
You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.